Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which, you know, we slow walk through Dante's comedy. You know this drill. I'm sure you do. If you don't know this drill, let me say that there's a lot lot of material right behind us. So you might want to catch up to us or drop in here. We're at the end of Canto 32 of Inferno. We're at lines 124 through 139 in my English translation of the medieval Florentine. We have come through two of the sub-circles of the lowest ring of hell, the ice sheet of Cocytus. And we are in a place here in which we are at a weird transition point coming in to the most horrific scene in all of Inferno. This is the setup for it. It's the very end of Canto 32. Let's get to it. Lines 124 through 139 of Canto 32 of Inferno. We'd already taken our leave of that guy when I saw two frozen together in one hole, so close that the head of one was like the cap to the other, as a starving man gnaws on a piece of bread, the upper one's teeth were in the lower one, just where the brain stem meets the nape of the neck, not unlike Titius, who gnawed at the severed head of Melanippus out of spite. This one munched on the bone and the other stuff. Oh, you, who demonstrate in such a bestial way, such hatred in the way you eat the other guy? Tell me why, I said, and let this be our agreement. If what you say shows truly your grievance against him, know that the both of you and his sin will get reimbursed by me back in the world above, if that with which I speak doesn't go dry. A terrifying scene. Two stuck in the ice sheet together, one eating out the brains of the other, chewing through his skull. It is truly one of the most horrific scenes in all of Inferno. It's got a couple of interesting pieces to it. We want to talk through this. And really what we're doing is setting up what's going to happen in Canto 33 of Inferno, in which the chewer here. (laughs) The guy who's doing the gnawing is going to reveal himself and become for us the last great sinner of hell. We'd already taken our leave of that guy, of Boca de Abati. He's been passed off. And it's interesting how they take their leave. If you remember back to that passage where we were with Boca, it kind of just drops off. He, you know, basically is snitching on a bunch of people. And then there's not really a summation to that scene. We almost expect some kind of summation or ending statement and instead we just pass on. This is more of the borders being blurred here in Lower Hell. And the pilgrim then sees two frozen together in one hole so close that the head of one was like the cap of the other. Notice this double simile. 
as a starving man gnaws on a piece of bread, the upper one's teeth were in the lower one, just where the brain stem meets the neck. Not unlike Titius, who gnawed on the severed head of Melanippus out of spite. We have a low bit starving man on a crust of bread, low in Dante's terms, low as in commonplace, as in part of this world, and then a high bit to the simile, a classical reference. We're going to talk about why that is, but let's just stop and say doubled simile. And remember, there is so much doubling here in the ninth pit of hell. We've had those two brothers who were bound up chest to chest. We've had doubling in the episodes with both Camicione de Pazzi and then Bocca de Abati. Those two were paired up together. What is it about this bit of treachery that causes so much doubling? Is it that, in fact, they're doubled in some way because treachery itself is a doubling or is taking advantage of a doubling or is double dealing or that what you're doing is really hurting yourself or (laughs) I could go on or that there is a way in which you and I are so close together that I stab you maybe not even in the back in the front and we're close together close enough to be almost chest to chest what is it here about treachery that leads to so much doubling and even here at the back of the 32nd canto we have a double simile it's an interesting question an interesting thematic question and I can't draw any distinct answers to it I can give you and lead you to many different answers for it you might want to think about it more what about treachery is so involved with the problem of doubling, which is what's going on here. And here, again, two figures in a hole, one chewing on the other. Why is it all doubled down here in the final pit of hell? But let's talk about this classical imagery that's going on here. Not unlike Titius, who gnawed on the severed head of Melanippus out of spite. The reference here is to Stasius's Thebiad, or Tabiad, or Fabiad, depending on how you want to pronounce the name of Stasius's great epic. It's in Book 8, and it starts at line 751. It's the back of Book 8. What is happening here, the, the couple things we want to point out, is that Titius is the king of Caledon. He's one of the seven kings who wage war against Thebes. He is mortally wounded by this figure Melanippus. I should tell you that the name of this figure, Melanippus, is not that in Dante. It's Menalippo. This is an interesting problem. Dante has misspelled the name of a character from Stasius's epic. Is that because Dante is not looking at the epic? Because Dante is just quoting a reference without actually having the passage in front of him? Is it a textual problem over years of textual transmission of Dante? In other words, Dante originally got it right, but scribes afterwards reversed the consonants. It's an interesting problem, but it's not one that's actually going to concern us because we're going to be much more concerned with what's going on here. So, Titius, the king of Caledon, is wounded by this guy. He's, in fact, mortally wounded at the siege of Thebes. And Caponaeus, remember Caponaeus? He stretched out on the sands for blasphemy. Caponaeus brings Melanippus 
to Tidius. Tidius is dying of his wounds. Tidius has Melanippus's head cut off, and as he dies, Tidius eats the head of the man who mortally wounded him. It's a really disgusting and disturbing moment in Stasius, just like it's a disturbing moment here. Two things we want to say about this. One, we are still on the Theban material. Remember I told you that the lowest tale is going to be so much about the fall of Thebes, not the fall of Troy, but the fall of Thebes. And Thebes is going to keep coming up down here in lowest tale. That's the first thing that I want to say. And the second thing is Stasius. We have a direct reference to Stasius's great epic on the fall of Thebes. And I think there's a marker here. Now, I can only see this marker in retrospect, to be honest with you. And I wouldn't see it if I were standing right here encountering this passage for the first time. But we are going to start a turn now away from Virgil and away from Lucan and toward Stasius as a primary source. And that move that turn toward the poet Stasius as a primary source is going to get carried out in Purgatorio. And I think that this, I see this in retrospect, this shows us a turn toward what will become primary source material in the Purgatorio. We've got to wait a lot ahead of us to get to that moment. But let's just suffice it to say that this is a disgusting episode in Stasius's epic, and it certainly is a disgusting episode here in Dante's Journey Across the Known Universe. There's also a biblical reference here, and we should just talk about it, because the pilgrim says, oh, you who demonstrate in such a special way such hatred in the way you eat the other guy, tell me why. For a very long time, commentators have pointed out that this is probably a reference to Paul's letter to the Galatians, the church at Galatia. It's probably from the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 15, and the verse is uh, basically admonishing the church to not engage in schismatic behavior, not to be backbiting, etc. And the verse is, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. That's probably sitting back here. And you should probably keep Galatians 5.15 and Paul's warning to his church there in the back of your head as we go forward, because the story that's going to be told is essentially a church strife story in which the last great sinner of hell will try to exonerate himself and also try to, what I want to say, detail, fill out the details of a churchly problem that happened to him because the guy he's gnawing is a churchly figure. But that's all ahead of us. We'll get to that (laughs) as we come down the line. Let's look at what else the pilgrim has to say. He makes an agreement with the chewer. He says, if what you say shows truly your grievance against him, know that the both of you and his sin will get reimbursed by me back in the world above if that with which I speak does not go dry. 
This is an interesting little bit because, remember, so many Dantistas want to make it that the damned in lower hell don't want to be remembered up on Earth. And we certainly saw this back with our former figures like Boca, who didn't want to be remembered up on Earth. But now Dante says to this guy, hey, if you tell me your whole story and it really works out that your grievance is true, then I'll kind of make you famous. I'll put you in this thing I'm writing. I'll reimburse you for your effort. Some of the damned, even down here, want to be remembered. And trust me, the guy ahead of us is definitely remembered by anyone who reads comedy, not just because he's gnawing on another sinner's head, but because of ultimately what happens to him in the tale that he tells. That last line, if that with which I speak doesn't go dry, you cannot believe the level of debate on that line. You can't believe the number of Dantistas who say, what in the world does that mean if that with which I speak doesn't go dry? The early commentators seem to be pretty divided that the line means either something like, as long as I don't die first. A lot of the early commentators say, you know, I'm going to reimburse you in the world up above as long as I don't die first. Other early commentators say what the line means is as long as words don't fail me. So as long as I can keep talking and as long as my words last, as long as they don't dry up on me, then I promise that if your tale truly shows your grievance, then I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to I'm going to make it part of my journey and part of this story, which, in fact, it becomes. There are a couple of modern interpretations of this line that are interesting. Some critics now in the modern world say if that with which I speak doesn't go dry, it should be translated something like, if the cold of Cocytus doesn't freeze me solid. Cocytus is supposed to be, remember, a very dry place because of this notion from Albert Magnus that ice squeezes the moisture out of water. So given that and given what Cocytus the ice would be seen as, it's so hard, a mountain falling on it wouldn't break it. So the idea is here, if the cold of Cocytus doesn't just freeze me solid, then I'll tell your tale. Interesting take on it. Not sure I buy it, but there's a, been a translation advanced by Guglielmo Gorni in 1966. I find this translation of the line particularly interesting. He claims that what the line really means is, as long as my Florentine vernacular doesn't die out. I can record your story, but this is going to presume that my Florentine vernacular that I'm writing my poem in, it's going to presume that it lasts. I love that interpretation of the line. I actually don't think it really does the line any service, but I love it because it's so interesting, because it's so intriguing about, well, is Dante the pilgrim and the poet knowing that Florentine, medieval Florentine, is, you know, going to corrupt and change and become modern Italian? I tend to read the line like this. Dante is speaking through his poem, and so it's a plea for poetic clarity. In other words, as long as I've got this gift and it doesn't dry up, this thing with which I speak, my poetic gift, as long as that doesn't dry up, 
I can then reimburse you back up in the world if you tell me your story. I like that, and I'll tell you why I like it. It has to do with the structure of Canto 32. That reading of the line ties it directly back to the opening of Canto 32. Remember, Canto 32 opens with the poet saying, I wish I had rhymes or verse form, even better, first form that was able to tell of the horrors of the ninth circle of hell. We come out of the 32nd canto and land here, which is I'll do it as long as that with which I speak doesn't dry up. This is yet another way that this canto is so sewed up. We had it start with a plea from the poet. We have it end with, for me, a similar plea, not from the poet, but from the pilgrim Dante. We've had all kinds of doublings. Canto 32 is really bound tight inside of it. And there has to be a level of Dantean irony here. I feel that if you start a poem and you say, wow, I hope I have the poetic craft to pull this off, and then you write this heavily structured thing... I feel like there's a little bit of irony going on there because you do have the craft to do it. It's like writing a sonnet about how you can't write a sonnet. (laughs) Or, (laughs) I don't know, writing a ballad about how you can't write a ballad. There would be some kind of irony running on underneath it. it. It carries a wild undercurrent fracturing irony. And I sometimes wonder if that little bit of Dantean humor isn't going on in the 32nd Canto because he complains at the opening, I hope I have the craft to do this. He complains at the end, I hope my poetic talent doesn't dry out. And in the middle of it is this perfectly balanced, like the pans of a scales balanced canto between these two sub-rings of cockatoos. I like to think there's a Dantean smile there. You might think it's heavy-handed. That would come down to a matter of what you think the craft is doing at this point. To finish this off, I want to come back to a point I made several episodes ago. Remember I said several episodes ago that the episodes inside Dante's comedy are bracketed or parenthesized. I used some hideous word like that. And I said, you know, they seem to obey their own logic internally. But when you get outside of them, they may contradict another bracketed episode. And I pointed out this bit of a sinner saying, I don't want to be remembered. And yet here we have the promise of fame if you tell me your story right. So again, the terms of the game seem to be changing around us. I want to connect this to late medieval polyphony. And I particularly want to connect it to the Notre Dame School of Polyphony. Let me explain this if you don't know what I'm talking about by the terms before I go on and talk about what all this really means. Polyphony is a musical form by which one melody is layered over or against or on top of another melody, not necessarily the same melody. There are, in the Western tradition, three basic forms of choral music. There's monophony, that is one voice. That's where everybody sings the same thing. Think of a Gregorian chant. 
everybody sings the same thing. Or let's think, uh, I don't know, you're at a birthday party and everybody sings happy birthday to you. It's probably going to happen in monophony. Everybody's going to sing the same line. Then there's homophony. Homophony is when you're singing in parts. If you've ever been in church and seen a hymnal, you know that the hymnals are written in homophony, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Everybody's singing the same words, but they're singing harmony under a dominant melody line that fits a chord structure. That's homophony. Polyphony means I start singing a line. Da-da-da-da-da. And you start singing another line. Da, 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 da. Please forgive my horrible voice. We're both singing melody lines. Then we start singing them at the same time. And the question is, how do our lines interact with each other? That's polyphony. Now, later, if you know about Renaissance music and you know about neoclassical music, you know that this form becomes the fugue. And in the fugue, that's where you and I are basically singing the same line, just at different moments. So I start singing da, 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 and then, hmm, let's say a few measures later, you come in with da 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 And you might not come in on the same pitch I started on, but we're both singing the same melody line, maybe at different points in the pitch scale. That's a fugue, which is development of polyphony. Polyphony is more complicated, too distinct, or in the case of the Notre Dame School of Polyphony that began around 1200 in Paris and whose prime exemplar is the composer Perrontin, it is a form in which you're taking three and four voices and you're layering three or four different melodies on each other to watch the interaction between them. Dante's comedy is polyphony. It takes different melodic lines. Listen, we read linearly, so we read from word A to word Z. So we can't do what we can do in music, but it takes alternate melodies and it forces them on top of each other. And thus the bracketed scenes inside comedy should, in my opinion, be seen as polyphony. They are competing melodic lines that are adding up to a whole. And thus, yes, I can claim that there is linearity inside of comedy, but it's not linearity in a classical sense of the word, in a neoclassical, rational sense of the word. It's linearity developed through multiple overlaying melodic lines. And so we have bokeh and his traitorous acts and his sniveling, sneering self overlaid or put underneath this next figure who's about to speak. And the rules of narrative change, just as when I sing a melody and when you sing a melody, the rules of our harmonics may change. And we hope they change together, but sometimes they don't. And that's the fun part, when they're dissonant. That's why everyone became so enamored with polyphony, because it produced 
dissonances, notes that clashed against each other. If I sang a line and you sang another line and we tried to put them on top of each other, they might start to clash in places. Imagine if I started singing the song from Oklahoma. Oh, what a beautiful morning. And you started singing Amazing Grace. Let's say we both sang that at the same time. We're going to create a lot of dissonance. There's going to be a lot of notes that clash, that don't work, that sound bad to the ear. And yet, if we both are in the same key, (laughs) I don't know if I was when I sang those, but okay, I'm no singer. But if we're both in the same key, we're ultimately going to end up at a harmonic unity at the end of our polyphony. Think about Dante's comedy as polyphony in literature, alternating melodic lines that are following their own logic, clashing, being dissonant, all to create more complex harmonies and all ultimately to land at a tonic place of resolution. I had been thinking about Dante's comedy and polyphony for, well, actually my own life, for years, but I've been thinking about it for this podcast for months and months and months, and I just wanted us to get enough of comedy under our belts so that we could hear the polyphony inside of Inferno and start to experience it here before we encounter the last great sinner. I hope you will subscribe to this podcast. Please rate it. I could use a good rating right now. I could use it in the analytics. I'm glad you're here with me on this walk. Thank you. Thank you to those of you who have contacted me, who have contacted me through my website. I really appreciate the human connection. And I will see you next time for this most disgusting sinner gnawing on the brains of another I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you next time.